You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Five Solas, we celebrate the five scriptural truths that sat at the core of the Protestant Reformation. Hello, uh, I'm Marty. I'm uh, an associate pastor here at Mountain City Church, um, and I'm going to be sharing with us uh, this morning. Um, over the next two weeks, yeah, um, over the next two weeks, um, we're going to be talking about something that was written about 500 years ago, um, and looking at five core things that Martin Luther um, wrote down as he was going through the Protestant Reformation, um, and they were become known as the five solas. Um, the five solas. Solas, I believe it's Latin for alone. Um, and we'll be looking at the five alones that Martin Luther um, wrote. This is Pastor Joe. He's at the uh, crew retreat that's going on this weekend. So they left Friday. Um, and so then they are, they've been um, at the crew retreat. They'll be coming back today. Um, and yesterday we had a great time um, at the corn maze. Uh, there were 52 of us. They came out to the Cove Run corn maze yesterday. Um, it was a good time. All 52 of us made it out of the maze. So that's amazing. <laughs> All kinds of FFA puns in there if you want maze and stuff. Anyways, uh, so that's been our weekend. So over the next two weeks, like I said, we're going to be looking um, at the five key ideas that one man and why his ideas penned over 500 years ago should still influence the church today. That man, like we said, is Martin Luther, and the five conclusions that the Holy Spirit revealed to this German monk were... The things that we needed in order to have a right relationship with God, in order to have salvation, were Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and God's glory alone. Uh, Today, I'll be talking about two of them. I'll be talking about grace alone and faith alone. And next week, spoiler alert, Joe is going to pick up the other three. Um, But Luther, one of the things that he's uh, most famously known for, is having some issues with the Holy Roman Catholic Church, about 95 issues, to be more specific. (laughs) Um, That's a a little bit of Reformation humor there. Martin Luther, he was not an anarchist set on causing controversy or making a religious movement in his own name. No, this German monk instead was distraught when he looked at the disparity between what the church at the time, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, was proclaiming about salvation and how God's word revealed this miraculous transformation of sinners. So as Martin Luther, um, and I'll share a little bit of his story of how he came to some of these conclusions and revelations, but Martin Luther, as he was looking at the church in his time, he was seeing that the, the Pope was putting all of these requirements and expectations on Followers, unbelievers, if you wanted to be a good Catholic, if you wanted to be a good Christian, these were the things you needed to do. But then Luther, as he kept reading God's word, he was seeing a despair. Like, well, this is what one man is saying, but here's what God's word is saying. And so it led him to pose the 95 theses, um, as he was famously known for, nailing them to uh, the, the, the church's door there. Um, and it became what it is. Known today, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So I'll, I'll keep reading my notes here. Um, I get distracted like Joe. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, opened Martin Luther's eyes, uh, placed him in a place of influence, and Luther was faithful to God's word. That sounds a whole lot like what we talked about in our last sermon series: God's people and God's place under God's uh, rule. 
what events did Luther undergo that caused this transformation? Well, again, there's books and books written on this, so we're just going to take a snapshot um, of this, um, of before and after Martin Luther's journey. And it all started with one text, one verse, actually, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, And it says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. During his early years, when Luther would would read what would would later become a Reformation text, his eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteousness. Who, after all, could live by faith but those who were already righteous? The text was clear on this matter. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther himself remarks, I hated the word, the righteousness of God, by which I have been taught according to the customs and the use of of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous, and he knew it. Luther, as, again, as he was reading scripture and as he was seeing his sin, he was trying to like, live by faith or knew he should live by faith, but he was not righteous. And so when he reads this, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, he did not see himself as righteous, as one who was able to keep God's word. Who able, he was, I was a sinner. So if I am a sinner, if I am unrighteous, how can I be faithful to God. So we saw this disparity, and maybe some of us have felt that. Like, I know what God's word has called me to, but I just, I can't do it, or I keep falling back into these sins. Well, Luther's story doesn't stop there. So Luther, he was um, tasked or commissioned, ordered, as, as one theologian put it, or historian put it, um, to take his doctorate in Bible and become a professor at Wittenberg University. During his lectures um, in the book of Psalms, and this is like in the year 1513, 1514, um, and on the study of the book of Romans, he began to see a way through his dilemma. As he was meditating on the Psalms and meditating and teaching the book of Romans, back to this verse again, God began to open up his eyes and he began to see how to answer that question. How can the righteous live by faith? Um, as, as Luther goes on to say, at last, meditating, meditating day and night, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Luther, as he was meditating on this and thinking, how can the righteous live by faith? He was beginning to see that this gift, this righteousness, it was actually a gift of God. That whenever you became a new creation in Christ, you became righteous, and therefore you could live righteously. I had one professor in college that defined righteousness very simply, um, and it's a great working way. Just If you are righteous, it basically means you keep your promises, you keep your word. And God always keeps his word, always keeps his promises. Um, our children today, um, they're back there talking about Isaac uh, and Abraham. 
and Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. But when you read that story, there's a beautiful line in there. Abraham, before they go up the mountain to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he tells the servants, says, stay here, um, the boy and I, we will come back to you. And like, oh, is he lying? Well, when you read in the book of Hebrews, it says, um, Abraham had faith that even if that knife had plunged into Isaac's chest and killed him, God would have brought Isaac back from the dead. That's the faith that Abraham had in trusting in God's word. Because God said, through you, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as many as the star in the sky and the sands upon the shore. That's what they're talking about. Uh, <laughs> um, so this gift, this righteousness, keeping your word, we see God always doing that. And now we become righteous. We are seen as righteous, as those who are made perfect in the eyes of God through salvation. And that is a gift that God gives to us at that moment of conversion. So for Luther, as he was thinking about these things, the, the church, it no longer became the Catholic church. It no longer became an institution defined by apostolic succession. Who's after who and saints and hierarchies. Instead, it was a community of those who had been given faith. The church, it went from being all about traditions and keeping all of these, um, um, all these traditions and all these regulations and all of these sacraments that were placed upon them and the paying of indulgences and all of these things that you would do that, as the Pope said you had to do in order to obtain salvation to be a good Christian. So instead of being this and this hierarchy, it went to just a community of those who had been given faith. A community that was unified together in Christ and had been made righteous. Not working for righteousness, but had been made righteous. Salvation came not by the holy sacraments served by the church, but it came in faith. This is what Luther began to see. And he, again, saw this disparity. He saw this disparity, and it led him to write these things that we'll be continuing to look at today. One thing, uh, again, just, there's so much, so much you can read about this time and the mindset. But again, for Luther, like the idea that human beings had a spark of goodness in them, enough to seek out God, it was not a, the foundation of theology, but he said it was something that was taught only by fools. The fact that there's something good enough in you to desire God, he said, like, fools teach that. Like, there's no biblical truth to that. It is God revealing himself to us that we turn to him. Uh, humanity, again, just there's so many great quotes out there. Like, humanity was no longer a virtue that earned grace, um, but a necessary response to the gift of grace. Sorry, humility. That's the word I was, I, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Humility was no longer a virtue that earned you grace. Just be good, be pious. Like, no, but it was a response to the gift of grace. And lastly, and then we'll, we'll be looking in the book of Galatians. Like, faith no longer consisted of blindly submitting to the church's teaching, but, but of trusting the promise of God and the merits of Christ. Faith no longer constituted the blindly submitting to the church's teaching. Keep these things and you'll be good. Just throw some money in the coffers. Um, as the coins and coffers cling, a, a, a soul fr from purgatory gladly flings or so in Galatians 
Paul, he was addressing things that were happening in the church in his day. As Luther, in, in the year 1500s, was addressing like, the way the church, the way the, the hierarchy of the time was putting all these extra requirements on God's word, Paul, just a few, a few decades after the death of Christ, he was having to go back and reteach the church. Like, hey, salvation is not through all of these things. And Paul is showing up and writing to the Galatians, a church that he had visited and spoken to, is reminding them, hey guys, if you really are a follower of Christ, this is what it means. This is what it means. So let's, let's look at, um, so under faith, under faith alone, um, so let's look at the faith problem. So in Galatians 1, uh, Matt, Matt read some of this for us this morning. Um, Galatians 1, um, 6 through 9. Um, yeah, Galatians 1. Oh, that's why I'm in Romans. Like, that doesn't look right. But, sorry, being Galatians, I had my Bible open to Romans. I'm like, this doesn't look right. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you so, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Paul, again, Paul, as he is speaking here, as he's speaking here, this book was written between like 48 and 55 AD, as Paul was saying, like, hey, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the truth that we have told you about Christ, like that, let, don't believe it. Later on, like he says, I, I'm astonished how quickly you've forgotten. Who has bewitched you, Galatians? Oh, foolish Galatians. Like, he doesn't pull punches. And so he's correcting them. And, and Luther, uh, 1,500 years later, was doing, did the same thing. Like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is not salvation. So Paul was saying there's those who've come um, to, to, be, to bewitch you, teaching you another gospel. Well, well, what was this other gospel that they were teaching? Well, flip later in the book to Galatians 5, 5 uh, verses 1 through 6. For, uh, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand ver- firm, therefore, and do not... Again, submit to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man um, who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. For you are, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
Only faith working through love. There were Judaizers, those who were coming to these early Christians, and they were coming in there and saying, hey, you guys, cool, we love Jesus, we also love the law of Moses, you got to keep both. you got to have this hybrid both and in order to be made right. Jesus is good, but you need these other things. And when you really start to think about it. It's like, Jesus' death on the cross is great, but unless you do like a little plastic surgery, you can't be a full Christian. That's what these Judaizers are really saying. Like, Jesus can save your sins, but but only if, you know. And so Paul's coming and saying, no, no, no. You, You don't have to keep, the law is not the means of salvation. Yes, Paul, Paul says the law is a good thing. It was a shadow of the things to come. Like Jesus himself says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So again, hear my words. I'm not saying to rip out the whole Old Testament, throw that away. No. Like there's, there's good stuff and there's truth in there. But Paul is saying like, Jesus is the only means for salvation. And it is this faith working through love. Faith in Christ. This faith in him alone. He, he goes on, and uh, Paul goes on in chapter 6, chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It is only faith. The only thing that counts is Christ. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised, uncircumcised, if you're Jewish, if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter. As long as you are a new creation in Christ, that's, that's it. That is, what, that is where salvation happens. It is not through the keeping of the law, because it is impossible to keep the whole law. And that is what Paul keeps coming back to. It is through faith alone. It is through faith. It is through trusting in the promised and completed work of Christ that we are saved. It is through faith alone. Paul was saying these words, and 1,500 years later, Luther came back and was reminding the world It is through faith in Christ alone. It is through faith that we are saved. Not through works. Not through the keeping of the sacraments. It's not through earning spiritual religious bonus points. That is not how we obtain salvation. It is through faith alone. So what is the solution? Well, like I said, it is through faith alone. So again, let's use Paul's words to unpack Paul's words. Again, Galatians 2. If nothing else, you can say, hey, we read all of Galatians in church today. So, uh, Galatians, it's a good book. It's like, it's, it, 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 that one and James are some of my favorites. Okay. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 15. So let's look at the solution here, okay? Paul, let's use Paul's words, keeping in the context of Paul's letter, to understand Paul's words. Galatians 2. This is a big chunk, so I'm just going to read, and we'll just let God's word speak. Um, Chapter 2, verse 15, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 3, verse 14. It's a big chunk. Let's let Paul's words speak to us. Galatians 2, 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, these aren't my words. These are Paul's words. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, uh, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sinners? A servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved and gave himself for me. I, did not nulli- um, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Like, just stick a pin with it. Again, like, if we were able to be saved by the law, then God coming in human form and dying was pointless. It's something God didn't have to do. But because there was no other way, he had to take the nuclear option. No, he had to go and do the only thing that would work. Let's, chapter 3. Keep, keep going with Paul here. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as, crucif- as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the, the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness. Hey, that's what our kids are talking about today. No. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Just two more verses. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, uh, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, if the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but rather to the one and to your offspring, who is Christ.
Christ. And Paul is saying the way that we come into this family of God, this we, uh, Father Abraham had many sons, the way we become part of this family is not through keeping of the law, is not through the keeping of the law, it is through faith. And we're going to look uh, in our next, as we we're talking about grace, we're going to be looking at some of Paul's words in Romans, and he says the same thing. It is through faith that we are brought into this family. And he says, just because someone was born Jewish, it doesn't mean they're a descendant of Israel. They're not a follower of God just because they were born Jewish. He says, no, only those who are in it by faith. And Paul says in Philippians 3.9, Paul says in Philippians 3.9, I think we have that. Do I have that one? No, I don't have that one. Okay. Uh, Philippians 3.9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Luther, as he was pouring over the text, as he was looking at these words, Luther came to the same conclusions that Paul was reminding the early church of. It is through faith alone in the promised Work and the perfect work of Christ, and the perfect work of Christ being our sacrifice, Him taking our place, that we are made right. It is through faith, not through works, not through the keeping of the law, as Luther would go, it's not through the keeping of the sacraments and the keeping of the teaching of the church at the time. It is through faith that we are saved. It is through faith that we are saved. And because we have been saved, I guess, so what, what does this look like? What is this grace we receive, this, this wonderful mystery that we sang about? What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Well, let's look at this. Let, let's look at grace. So we're going to be looking in two books. Again, Paul's teachings here in Ephesians 2 and Romans 9. So let's start with Ephesians 2. As we're looking at grace alone. It is through faith that we are saved, and there's this work of grace that happens. This work of grace that happens. Ephesians 2. I promise we're not reading the entire book of Ephesians, so just, just, we're just going to look at two verses here. Uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 2, um, 8, 9, and 10. Many of you have probably memorized this, or if you were in like Awana, I know these are some key Awana verses. Um, to, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For... By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace, many of us have probably heard that grace is um, used as an acronym even, to say, like God's riches at Christ's expense. The riches of his love, the riches of his forgiveness, the riches of salvation and spending eternity with him. God's riches at Christ's expense. And you're right, that, that, is, that, is, a good, that is a good definition. I'm not going to, like, but, no. That's a good definition. But I, I want us to understand it maybe even more or appreciate it more. That There's this grace that God gives us. God gives us grace that we do not deserve. 
That's what Paul's saying here in, in Ephesians 2. It is, it is a gift of God, not something we've done to earn, like, wow, you, you've deserved that grace. No, none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. And so how does, how does God choose or decide to give us this wonderful mystery, this wonderful outpouring of his grace? Well, to make it as clear as Paul can, uh, let's look at uh, Romans 9. Again, as, as Luther was looking at these things, let's, let's, let's see how Paul, what Paul was saying on, on this topic in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse, verse 14. Um, yeah, so if, you, I mean, if, you, if you're wanting to go back and look and get a little bit more context here, Paul was saying back up in um, verse 6, he says, um, basically, just because you're a, a Jew, it doesn't mean you're automatically fast-tracked into heaven. Like, it is only those who are followers of God, who are actually have faith in Him, who are a follower of Him. Just because your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham, it doesn't mean, like, you're in. He says, so not all of Israel actually is, belongs to Israel. And we saw in Galatians, he said, there are Gentiles that are now part of this family. People that are, have no connection with Abraham, they're now part of this family. And so Paul was going on saying, hey, hey, Jews... Uh, living in Rome that are Christians, just because you're a Jew, it doesn't mean you're automatically in. And just, uh, so, when he gets to verse 14, he says, so what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will, or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. For, for the scriptures um, says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. I mean, let's just read a, read a few more verses here. Um, you, you will say then, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Um, will what is molded say to the molder, or will the clay say to the potter, okay, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right uh, over the clay to make this, uh, the same lump, uh, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What is God desire? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destructions, in order to make known the riches of His glory, the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? There's so, so much in here, but we're seeing that it is God who has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And again, that's, that's really tough, and we start to like, well, how do, we, how do we know? We don't. I mean, that's even what Paul says. Like, it's like clay talking to the potter, like, hey, why did you make me into um, a beautiful cup? Um, or why did you make me into the bedpan? And that same lump over there is like a chalice for a king. 
And the potter says, I just, I did. The clay has no right to, to demand the potter, you need to make me into this. Or I need to look this way. Like, no. Like, and I love even Paul. Like, when you think about Adam, he was made from the dust. And so now we have clay, basically wet dust, um, demanding to be formed exactly into its, the dust's desire. Because like, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Well, and even when you think um, back when he talks, talks to Pharaoh, when you think of that part of the Exodus story, um, in that part of the Exodus story, this is during the ten plagues, and God tells Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to harden your heart so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth, that all the world will know that I am God. And when you think about, like, ge- geologically, geographically, there's the word, geographically, where Egypt was located, like, it was a huge trade center of the world. And you could just imagine the destruction that came upon the ten plagues. And then when they tried to cross the Red Sea, and that didn't work out so well. Um, and just the armies of Egypt are obliterated. Pharaoh is out of power. His fields are gone. His slaves are gone. Um, it says there were, um, when it says in uh, Exodus 12, when it says in Exodus 12 that there were... Um, that there were 600,000 men on foot besides the women and children and a mixed multitude that left. So some estimate there were over 3 million people left Egypt at that time. You could imagine somebody like, oh, we're making our daily trade route, our yearly trade route up to Egypt. They get there and like, what happened to this place? Hey, what happened here? Yahweh did this. Well, and even if we keep reading and when you get to the book of Joshua, whenever the, the spies check out the land, they check out Jericho, uh, Rahab says, we have heard what your God has done and our hearts have melted in us. This is 40 years later. So when God says, my name will be known, year, years later, far away, Rahab, a non-Jew, is like, we heard what your God did, our hearts melted, and there is no God but Yahweh. Protect, when you come to destroy the city, may our house be safe. And they save her, and when you, and when you read in, the, uh, in the, the gospel accounts, Rahab, an outsider, is brought in, and not only in, she's in the lineage of Jesus. So when, when, he's, so when, so when Paul is saying, like, those who are outside, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, yeah, this includes people that were living in a pagan city that God ultimately destroyed, but had mercy and brought her in. Why? Because of her faith. And she saw what God did, and her heart melted. Yes, other people were scared, but theirs led to hiding in fear and build stronger walls, but hers was repentance and trusting in God and had mercy on whom he will have mercy. It is through God choosing on whom he will have mercy. And this is a mystery, and we could debate it and argue, and people have speculated, and we we could just go around in circles. But ultimately, like, the more I read scripture, I, I see as Luther says, I see as Paul says, it is a mystery that God chooses whom he will. When you go back to, again, with Abraham, he had two sons, um, Isaac and Ishmael. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and he says, Jacob is the one that will be greater than, than the other. And so we see God choosing this, this, these people. God chose Noah. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham, a guy who worshipped idols uh, in the land of Ur, to be the father of his nation. God chooses. 
It is not through doing spiritual push-ups or gaining God's favor um, or some two theological words that get thrown around at times. And um, Some say that grace is uh, synergistic. It is not this. Um, as if it depends on our will for its success, for salvation success. If I will it, if I work hard enough, if I want this thing hard enough, it will happen. Like that there's some good in you. Well, we see that there's no, no, no one is good. We are sinful. No, but when, um, on the contrary, we see it is uh, monergistic. That God alone works to bring us dead, lifeless sinners to a new life in his son. It is God who does it. Mono, one-sided. God who does it. Not us that begins this. It is his grace, his mercy that he shows us. It is through his grace alone. So in Paul's day, we see that there were Jews at the time that were adding and twisting and distorting the perfect salvation of Christ by adding to it. We see that in Luther's time that the Pope in the Catholic Church and others were adding to salvation. You know, here we are 500 plus years after the, the Protestant Reformation. This is why we're looking at Luther's words because it is incredible for us, it is incredibly important for us to be reminded that we need to also be going back to Scripture, that it is through faith that we are saved, not through works, that it is through grace, this gift of God that He gives us. And Oh, how much humility that should show, like, that we should live out. Like, look what God has done in us. We didn't deserve it. <laughs> there was nothing that we had done. God gave it to us. And, and, I, and I wonder, as I'm, as I'm thinking about, you know, the church today. So we can see it in Paul. We can see it in Luther. But the church today, like, what are we doing? What are we maybe even doing here at Mountain City that... We're starting to get away from what God has called for good or for bad or how it's being used. But one thing that loosely came to mind, I know in our culture, like there's this um, idea that's coming out now is like, it's being called quiet quitting. People that are just, like, I'm just doing the expect, like, not the bare minimum, but I'm doing exactly what my job tells me to do and I'm punching out. And I think that can be a good thing. So, Bosses and employers don't uh, manipulate or hurt people. But I wonder, I wonder if in some way with, with our salvation, if we're almost like quiet quitting in our, salva- in our salvation or the outpouring of it. Where, you know what, like I've, I've done my bare minimum. I, I, I read my Bible. I came to church and I said a prayer before my eight three times a day. Well, I didn't do breakfast because it was just coffee. But it, Like, are we diminishing salvation? Or, hey, we've received this grace. We, we, like, through faith, we've received this. But like, it just maybe stops there. Maybe we're not adding to. Maybe we're subtracting from. I know um, a desire for Joe and I, uh, as I have stepped into this position as um, associate pastor of um, working with the children's ministries and parents, like one of the things that I am desiring to do is help to equip parents. Not saying parents are doing a bad job by any means, but helping give tools. And so the church is coming alongside, not replacing. There's so many books that are being written. How um, I think even I think even Pastor Stefan said this. Like somebody brought somebody brought a, a youth to him. It's like fix them. Like 
Like, that's, that's not the point of the church. We're here to help, but not say, I can't do it, outsource. So one of the things that we try to do is send out a, a parent email that's giving you the resources and helping you know what your children are talking about, giving you videos and things to engage so you can be talking about um, God in very easy ways um, throughout your week, giving you tools. By no means am I perfect in this, and I'm growing. And if you have ideas and ways to help, let me know. Um, I love um, Becca McCauley. She gave me some great information. And so on the bookshelf back there, on that bottom row, there's a bunch of children's books, great biblical children's books that are beautifully written and visually uh, vibrant. It's a great resource. And if you're a young person or an old person, just want, hey, I just want a fun book. Just get one of those. Go, okay? Um, <laughs> they're great. Uh, but trying to help equip. So we're not subtracting from or adding to salvation. This battle, this tension has been going on for over 2,000 years and it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. But as we're going through the last two weekends of October, it is the, the Protestant Reformation is when many churches celebrate it. And as we're looking today at faith alone, in grace alone. May we not be adding to or subtracting from salvation, but remembering and celebrating what Christ has done on the cross for us. Let, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so, so much for the, your Holy Spirit that is revealing the, that these words are written down, that your words are written down that we can know you and begin to understand your, your plan, your will for us. That your salvation, it is, it is a gift. That this grace, it is a gift. And we, we believe and accept it through faith, not through works. But yes, our lives look different, but that is because of the change that has taken place. We're not trying to change in order to gain your favor we, are cha- we, are, we change because we love you. Father, I pray for, for this, this church and those listening and, uh, and those who are were unable to be here that we will continually desire to go back to your word, continually desire to know you and reveal the things in us, God, as you revealed to Paul to Luther and to us, the things that get in the way, the things that we have added that need to be intended to be worshipped. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.